Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by a returning guest to the podcast, former CNN and New York Times media host and correspondent Brian Stelter. On to talk about his new book and more. This is episode 54. I've known Brian for more than 15 years, and we definitely don't always agree, but we both like to have the conversation. I think that's important. Today, we get into Hannity and Tucker, the Murdochs and Abby Grossberg, CNN under Chris Licht, and life after being let go last year. But we begin with the genesis for his new book, Network of Lies. Welcome back to the Fourth Watch podcast. I had you on back in February uh, about my book, and now glad to have you on for your book. Uh, network of lies. So uh, let me start with the impetus for the book. I, I think it was announced in March. So this was after the Dominion text has been released before yeah. the supposed trial was supposed to start, which never actually did start. Um, how did it come about? And and what was your, was, was your focus always a jumping off point with Dominion texts that go back to 2021? How did it kind of materialize? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you'll appreciate this because it starts as a form of media criticism. Uh, so much coverage of the media, it relies on anonymous sources. And that's been true for my career uh, for 20 years uh, covering cable news. Sometimes the most interesting, juiciest bits you're going to get are from anonymous sources. People will only talk if they're guaranteed confidentiality. Uh, you know, And that's true all across this industry as well as many others. What fascinated me about the Dominion legal filings um, was that these quotes were on the record. Right. We suddenly had an on-the-record view inside Fox News and inside Fox Corporation, meaning inside Rupert Murdoch's inbox and Laughlin Murdoch's inbox. Yeah, It almost never happens. Uh, I, I've never seen this happen at any major media company. Um, to have such a detailed x-ray of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and by the way, we should acknowledge, because I acknowledge this in the book, uh, this is excruciating for the people involved. This was excruciating for the people involved. Um, I had two pages of my text messages uh, scooped up in the in the Dominion filings. And I found that to be really awkward. And those were only two pages. So I do want to acknowledge, you know, the the embarrassment and the awkwardness for these Fox hosts and executives who had hundreds and thousands of pages of their communications uh, suddenly made public. You know, these are text messages that were sent in the heat of the moment um, by people who thought they'd always stay private. But here they were. These messages were suddenly forced into public view. And it felt to me, I felt like someone should put them in a book. I felt like someone should do the book length version of this because uh, just because something's made public and it's in a court filing does not mean it's easy to find. In fact, most of these documents are hard to find. Uh, A bunch of these text messages and emails have never been published until I put them in the book. Uh, because you know they're up in some court system, some database right. in Wilmington, Delaware. So that was the impetus. I saw an opportunity to write a book, not based on anonymous sources, but on the record sources. Right, yeah, uh, it's sort of on the record in a way that they had not expected, uh, for sure. I know in, in the book, you you mentioned some, I, 
people, you know, media nerds like myself knew some of these text messages, and we'll get to some of the text messages that have been made public. Certainly, a lot of them that that have not been been done that I've ever seen, and not laid out in kind of the chronological order and in, in certain the way that you've you've done it. I mean, Brett Bear's text messages with his uh, golfing buddies about things. I mean, just things that are 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 way, like you say, invasive for sure, but give us a picture of what that was like in the months leading up to the election and the months after um, in particular. It's definitely invasive. And that's why I like to say off the bat that I I do have some sympathy for those involved. And, uh, you know, the two pages of messages that were uh, from me, they were between me and Irina Briganti, the head of Fox News PR uh, on a Sunday in September before the election. So that was a pretty innocent exchange, uh, that, you know, and a pretty common exchange we would have before episodes of Reliable Sources. So I knew wh- what Fox was, uh, wh- what Fox's point of view was. You mentioned Brett Baer, and I thought his messages were really interesting. Baer was like this human Gumby doll being stretched in multiple directions. There's been a lot of criticism of him for uh, seeming to want to withdraw the Arizona call for Biden and put it back in Trump's column during that uh, election week of 2020. But what you see in these messages is also a really human being. You know, I, I say in the book, it's the real Brett, right. his father of two who was stuck in New York anchoring election week coverage from New York and just missing his kids at home in D.C., One night he texts his friends and says, I'm tired and pissed and running out of suits. (laughs) You know, like he didn't bring enough clothes for for election week because we didn't think we were going to have to have an entire week of vote counting. And he says, there's no bars open and I may just tear into some Trump campaign spokesperson's head off tomorrow. You know, he's so frustrated uh, with with this voter fraud narrative that's starting. And he says in this text, and that's why it mattered to Dominion, he says, there's no evidence of fraud. It, it was those kinds of messages that Dominion needed for their case right. to show that someone like Brett Baer uh, said there was no evidence of fraud. Um, but beyond what Dominion needed for its case, you also see the human beings involved here. Well, that's that's that was one of my takeaways, honestly, from reading it um, is you know, a lot of times you have a book uh, and or a, a long piece of content, whatever that is, and you can kind of identify good guys and bad guys, you know, heroes and villains. It's I would say it's rather difficult here. And I, I think there, there are certainly people that will read it and say everyone's bad. You know, everyone's behind the big conspiracy. But almost every single person that is a character in the book, which are almost all Fox or News Corp uh, employees or executives, uh, there's nuance to it. Uh, there, you see people wrestling. You see kind of the the differences between what they say publicly and privately. But sometimes what they say publicly versus what they say privately, you might say, well, they're they're kind of telling the truth here. And why are they? It, there's a lot to it. And so I, I wonder as you as you look at it and kind of try to identify some of these, you know, good guys and bad guys, for lack of a better term, where you shake out. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do resist that framing for the reason you just said, like, it's more interesting when it's more complicated. It's more interesting when it's more nuanced. Um, I find Sean Hannity's back and forth to be fascinating because in November and December of 2020, the man often called the shadow chief of staff to Donald Trump, uh, the closest ally Trump has on Fox, um, according to Rupert Murdoch under oath, you know, the, the person that was closest to Trump during the Trump White House years at Fox was Sean Hannity. Right. And in November and December of 2020, you have Hannity uh, sad by Trump's loss, disbelieving Trump's loss, disbelieving that Biden could have pulled this off, um, frustrated with Trump's behavior, 
worried about uh, people quitting the Trump White House, uh, texting with Mark Meadows about trying to land the plane safely in the wake of January 6th. I think you see every emotion in the book from Sean Hannity in these messages. And, you know, let's recognize a lot of these are from Mark Meadows. You know, Meadows early on provided that treasure trove of text messages to the House January 6th committee. And uh, and so there's messages from Hannity from that treasure trove. And then there's messages that Dominion obtained where Hannity is chatting with his producers and chatting with Tyra Carlson and Laura Ingram, uh, fighting about the journalists over on the, the news side of Fox who he believes are undermining him. So you, you just you have the whole wide range of emotions uh, when you when you see it from from Hannity. And by the way, Hannity was asked to cooperate with January 6th committee. He declined. Uh, he never wanted these messages shown. He's never, in my opinion, shared what he knew about Trump's state of mind before and after January 6th. Uh, Trump, you know, was on the phone with Hannity. And then Hannity sent a text message afterwards. I think this was January 9th or 10th, where Hannity feels like Trump's not making any sense. Right. And not getting and he's not, he's not getting through to the president. So my, my, I guess I'm, I'm kind of going on here, but there's a lot there's a lot going on in Hannity's head. And you, you see a lot of those emotions throughout those few months. Up next, Brian's relationship with Tucker Carlson, going back 20 years, and today. Well, you mentioned, I would say, the main character in the book, uh, and that's Tucker Carlson. Uh, you know, you start the book with him, basically, and the hey, book. You're your buddy, right? He's your buddy. I, I Not my buddy. I, uh, I don't know him personally. And in fact, that's kind of... You interviewed him for your book. I've interviewed for my book. I've interviewed him uh, three or four times, probably in in the course of the last fifteen years, um, let's say. And I have known him for a while, but I actually, uh, it's interesting. I want to spend a little time on Tucker because, I, in a way, he's your buddy. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You start uh, early on talking about your early relationship with him when you were at running TV Newser. How you were asking for donations. He tipped a hundred bucks, which was the single greatest sum you ever received from anyone. You went to dinner. So with generous. Him. Thank yeah. you. Tucker. Yeah, you went to dinner with him uh, when you would um, go on his MSNBC show uh, and he would praise TV Newser. Uh, he was, you know, Tucker's a big consumer. He likes to say he doesn't consume anything, but I, I think he's a consumer of the media as much as anyone. Um, yeah. And and so I, I wonder, let me just start there. Tell me about like the Tucker Carlson relationship you had over the last 20 plus years. I probably shouldn't say this, but I was a big fan of Tucker Carlson uh, in his Crossfire days. Uh, he had this unpredictable libertarian streak. He was not your average conservative commentator on cable news. Uh, he was young. He brought a, a, a young energy. You, know, you got to remember on Crossfire, you had a bunch of, of, of people in their 60s. Right. And here comes Tucker, you know, barely 30, uh, maybe even not, even not quite 30. You know, he's in the early 30s. Uh, he brought a different energy and, and view to Crossfire and then also to MSNBC. Uh, later in the in the in the two thousands, um, I interviewed him uh, right before his first day at Fox News when he was joining as a commentator. He later moved to the the weekend show, Fox and Friends Weekend. I think it's really revealing how much he hated being on that show. Um, he did it for the money. He did it because he needed a steady TV job to to take care of his family. But he hated commuting to New York uh, when his family was in D.C. and uh, you know living out of a hotel, um, you know having to do you know morning TV stunts. He he wanted to be doing a more serious work, more intellectual work, and so when he gained a primetime show and his star, you know, started to rise very very suddenly, uh, you know, my view is that that changed him, and that he was chasing the audience, chasing a radicalized audience, um, 
and trying to deliver whatever they wanted every day. But but to go back to you know knowing it more personally, you know I think that that uh, that um, how do I say it? Um, you know, I think he was very charming when he it, it, back in his CNN and MSNBC days, uh, and I think he bought a lot of goodwill among a lot of people in Washington and New York and elsewhere who now look around. They say, who is this guy? We don't recognize this guy anymore. Yeah. I, I, uh, obviously your relationship with him has changed. I know he's talked to, uh, give business insider a quote about your book, said you're a sad little moron who knows nothing. Um, but that was specifically about your story about his exit from Fox, which I think is still very much a, a parlor guessing game for so many people. I, I, I know you've laid out some of the scenarios that contributed to it. You know, it's not one thing, there's several things and there's some things that maybe it's not that. Um, but I, I wonder as you look at it, I've always been curious about I, I, you do you do touch on the fact that, you know, he thinks that it was the Dominion lawsuit itself that was, you know, whether it was contingent on his exit or it was a contributing factor to it. I'm always curious about like not firing him versus taking him off the air. Like, where's the where's the delineation there? But as you look at it, I mean, he's now he's now been gone for for six months or so. Uh, What's your conclusion on on it? You know where where it, where it kind of nets out. Well, number one, I would pull out a quote that he said uh, when he was appearing in Hungary back in August. So this was, I guess, four months after he was canceled. And he said on stage, he said, "This is the third time I've been fired as an adult, and I would really recommend it to anybody. It's great to get fired because it keeps you from being a truly horrible person. <laughs> the problem with men when they're successful is they start to think they're Jesus. It just happens, and getting fired reminds you, no, you're just like everybody else." That really resonated with me as someone who was canceled at CNN in 2022. I'm going to ask you about uh, that later. I, I, you know, I've had this amazing stretch of my life since then. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that Tucker, who at times has seemed to plot revenge against Fox, whose fingerprints have been on anti-Fox stories in the wake of his departure, who immediately, not immediately, very quickly launched a show on Twitter, now X, where he's seemingly sticking it to Fox. It was interesting to me to hear him in a, a more vulnerable moment say, you know, this was good for me. Getting right. fired was good for me. So uh, I thought that was interesting and should get more attention, given that he's also publicly blamed Dominion. So I don't buy the Dominion thing for one second. It just doesn't make any sense. Michael Wolff pushed it in his recent book. Uh, I thought it was just an example of taking dictation from Tucker. Dominion liked Tucker as a witness. They wanted Tucker on the stand to help their case. Because Tucker bashed Sidney Powell in November yep. of 2020. Tucker did this country a favor, by the way, by going on the air and saying, we like Sidney Powell, we want to see her evidence, but she won't show it to us, so we're skeptical. And then Sidney Powell uh, complained about him. Uh, he worked over the weekend to engineer stories about Sidney Powell. Uh, literally, the weekend, November 22nd, 2020, uh, this is like the Fox Dark Arts in effect, there's a story planted with the Washington Examiner saying that Sidney Powell's lost the trust of the Trump family. The Trump White House doesn't believe her. And by Sunday night, Trump has disavowed Sidney Powell. And then Tucker, in these private messages that we've now all read, uh, takes credit for it. And, and I'm serious. He, he did the country a favor because he helped to, to uh, remove one of those big liars about the big lie. But anywho, to get to your, your point about Tucker and, and uh, the mystery of his cancellation, I don't think it was, it, it, there's no reason to believe it was because of Dominion. But the Dominion case did bring up some of his behavior. 
and make him less tolerable inside Fox because the Fox board was confronted by some of his personal ugly text messages. So Dominion was a factor in that way, but it was an indirect factor in terms of the cancellation. And, and as I lay out, as, as you said, I believe it wasn't one thing. It was everything. It was like any bad breakup. It wasn't one thing. It was 20 different things. Yeah. Uh, let me ask a question. Cause when you were, you were, you talked to Ben Smith um, and said that, you know, you could see Tucker's fingerprints all over the hardcover of your 2020 book hoax. Um, and there was questions about whether he was a source in that book. And so I'm curious if you interviewed him for hoax, for network of lies, and uh, and when the last time you talked to him is, <laughs> I have not interviewed him in years, and I uh, think I wrote somewhere. I think I wrote in Vanity Fair that I stopped replying to his texts in uh, in 2022 uh, because I thought that he was getting hateful um, in 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 the messages. Uh, so I think I've said that publicly. You know, when I refer to fingerprints, and I, and I say that also about Network of Lies, you know, I, I say that you can see Tucker's fingerprints on some of the anti-Fox press that's been out there. That can mean a lot of different things. It can mean he has his allies, his friends, his former producers talking on his behalf. You know, there's a lot of ways for stories to be planted and, and, and et cetera. So that's what I mean when I say fingerprints. Okay, so you didn't interview him for, for hoax? No, uh, he did not. He did not talk to me uh, for Network of Lies. Um, uh, I did. I did text him. Actually, I did text him when he was when he was canned, because I saw the picture of him. You remember the Daily Mail had a paparazzi outside his house yeah. the day after he was canceled, and he had this huge smile on his face, this really joyful look, and he he made a joke about how retirement's going really well so far, and you know, like I kind of think that was staged, but I recognized the joy on his face. Because I, I feel like I had some of that same joy uh, when I was suddenly uh, freed of my TV responsibilities. So I did message him at that point, trying to get him to talk, and uh, no dice. Uh, okay, interesting. I um, I want to ask you about about your exit from CNN later. Uh, let me just That's stick with boring. Tucker. No, no, I don't think it is. I think there's there's angles to it, but, but kind of what you said. But I want to stick with Tucker. One last thing on, on that, because I you mentioned the monologue, the, the Sidney Powell monologue, even when he was saying behind the scenes before that, you know, how unbelievably offensive it was, what was happening to, you know, our viewers, you know, our viewers are good people. They believe it. They believe what Sidney Powell is telling them. They believe what Donald Trump is telling them. Um, a, a real kinship with the audience in that way, wanting to tell it to them straight, but wanting to them to, to, put it to them easy in a way, you know, to, right. to, to not to alienate them uh, from a, I, I would view it as from a, a looking out for them rather than looking out for necessarily the ratings of the, of the network. It, it was a more personal one. Why do you, I mean, do you, do you, th I don't think that he gets the kind of credit for that, that when it, when we look at the dominion and the, the post, you know, post-election 2020 situation with Fox. I mean, do you do you have a read of that, of where it breaks down on the kind of people that were trying to, to bring it back to reality and rationality versus those who let it spiral? So I'm of two minds on this. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the polite part of me says, Tucker should get credit for being gentle with his audience. And, and he was, I would think, among the most savvy at Fox and in, and in the right-wing media, in messaging to his viewers in a way that, you know, the people, people would meet him where he was, where he was. Right. Right. Not coming across as harsh and saying Trump lost, get over it, but instead doing it in a way that was gentle. So yes, there's a part of me that thinks he should get credit for that. There's another part of me that says, you know, 
just face reality um, and, and don't rely on news outlets that are going to going to hide the truth from you or whisper the truth and shout the lie. There was a moment when um, it was one of the days some of these Dominion documents landed and the press was buzzing about it. And Carlson had his own response to the bad press that day. He went on the air and out of nowhere, for no good reason, he started his show by saying, how did the senile hermit Joe Biden get 15 million more votes than crowd surfer rock star Barack Obama? So he goes on and basically says, wink, wink, I don't think Biden's a legitimate president, wink, wink, as a way to say, ignore all the Dominion noise. I'm on your side. I'm your ally. Yeah, there's these embarrassing emails saying I hate Trump, but I'm your ally. And so he's on the air saying things like, was the 2020 election a miracle? You know, and it's a wink, wink with his viewers to say, I'm with you. And to me, that's really cynical. That's really crass. But I know that you are more of a, how do we put it? You're a little more skeptical about the 2020 election than I am. No, I don't think so. I I'm, I was skeptical. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, took it seriously. And, uh, and I would say it was the most scrutinized election that we've ever had. And the fact that we have not found some massive fraud, and we knew this pretty early on uh, after 2020, after November 2020, m- leads me to believe absolutely that, you know, sure, there's fraud in every election, but there's not some massive fraud. No, I'm, I'm not skeptical of it at all. I think it was a Biden was totally legitimately elected because it was so scrutinized afterwards. But I guess the last thing I would just say on it is, um, and I asked Ben Smith this uh, when he was on, do, would you rather look in those text messages and see the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's of the world believe the voter fraud claims that Donald Trump says, or let's just say it's 2016 and you've got the text messages of people on MSNBC believing that the 2016 election was stolen thanks to Russia collusion or whatever else, uh, would it be better if those people actually believed the lies about election fraud from 2016, if, the, as, if that's what we saw in 2020. Oh, geez. I I, I mean, look, I, you make me think about Maria Bartiromo, who really, really, truly seemed to believe Trump won. You know, you look at, at her first. messages. At first. Yeah, but but throughout the month of November, I would say, of 2020, seems to really, truly believe it. Um, does not seem to be saying one thing on air, another thing off the air. And I don't know, there's a purity to that. Um, I would say she doesn't belong on television if she can't handle the truth and can't see through the fraudsters that were lying to her. But there's a purity to saying the same thing off air that you were saying on air. Coming up, what role do and should the Murdochs play at Fox News? Plus, Brian's life after CNN and being a dad. That's next. But first, I want to bring you some of my latest column for The Hill which featured an interview I did with Selena Zito, the uh, excellent reporter who saw Trump coming in 2016 better than anyone, continues to be out on the trail. So what does she see for 2024? First, she told me that we should focus on these moments, these moments after the election that we just had in 2023. They tell us a lot about where people are. Both parties need to understand it and make it part of their platform next year. Now, we look at it, Tuesday night was great for the Democrats, ominous sign for the Republicans. Democratic Kentucky governor won re-election easily. The GOP governor in Mississippi squeaked by. Democrats control now both houses in Virginia. In Ohio, an abortion amendment passed easily. But what does it mean, particularly in the GOP 2024 race? Selena told me, I've spent a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire listening to voters. I can see a scenario based on anecdotal reporting where DeSantis wins Iowa, Haley wins New Hampshire, 
and then all bets are off going into South Carolina. So what is behind that? Because certainly the polls show Trump a big 20, 30 points in these states. But she tells me there's a nuance that she finds to Trump supporters. They like what he did, thought his policies were great, but they're also really exhausted. His behavior is reflected on them because they supported him, she told me. So they're shopping in their head, looking for someone who's willing to go to the mattresses. DeSantis and Haley have proven they have that ability, also have governing experience, and the ability to be pragmatic, and that's where voters are. But in fact, Selena told me a possibility that would astonish the media establishment once again. Not just Trump, but Biden too. She says, I would not be shocked if neither man is the nominee come 2024. You can find that full column at The Hill. And more with Brian coming up, but I want to tell you that Fourth Watch is also on Substack still. For the rest of 2023, it's completely free, so just sign up, get extra written content at fourthwatch.media. That's fourthwatch.media. And now, back to Brian Stelter. I want to ask you about uh, something you wrote. I'm curious to know more about it. You you wrote that, um, this is a quote, Dominion obtained emails showing that Rupert and Lachlan communicated to Fox News through Suzanne Scott rather than directly with hosts and executives. For better and for worse, often for the worse, they did not meddle. I wonder, why do you think for the worse? Why, why, right. why would it be better if the owners of Fox meddled in the editorial of their network? Right. So owners of media companies should not meddle, should not interfere in the truth in the reporting of real news. But where they should interfere, where they should step in immediately, is when lies are being spread, when malicious falsehoods and misinformation are being spread. That's when they absolutely have a responsibility to step in. And, and that's where they didn't. That's where Rupert and Laughlin fell down on the job by letting these anti-Dominion, anti-Smartmatic, anti-reality you know, lies spread on the air. Let me ask you about the term, the big lie. Uh, you've used it here today. We've used it, I think it was about 35 times in the book. Um, you know, this this originated, it was in Mein Kampf, Hitler's book. It was a gold reference from Goebbels. It was a justification for the Holocaust. Biden, uh, President Biden was the one who originally used it when it came to election fraud claims. Why, why the big lie? Why does it have to be that? I think there's value and convenience in shorthand for lots of major events. You know, we, we think about January 6th, which again, you and I disagreed on some of the specifics. Uh, January 6th was uh, a major event for the United States. You could describe it in lots of different ways, but to me, the shorthand January 6th, you know, says it all. Um, it's kind of hard. I don't know of any better shorthand for the series of events surrounding the 2020 election that involved widespread lying and, and damage by the commander in chief and a coup attempt. Like I haven't heard a better shorthand than big lie, but if I hear it, I would rather use that. Like coup, coup attempts kind of spicy, but still not, still not there. I'd argue with that, but I, I mean, election, I know you would. Fraud I lies. I, I just, you know, it, it instantly, well, I mean, tw 2020 election lie. It's just sure. not, it's just, yeah. It's not as catchy, I guess. Okay, I, I you know, I, I grew up. I, you, we we grew up in the age of like the cable news wars, where like you know there'd be a logo for everything. We've kind of moved out of that era, actually, where everything gets like a tune, a two word stamp, a three word name. But you know, I'm old school. But but I mean, but seriously, like what? Don't you think we have to wrestle with how 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 dev how damaging it's been? Tens of millions of our our fellow citizens have been brainwashed into believing these crazy lies about Biden's illegitimacy. Uh, it hurts families. It destroys marriages. Like, it's a big lie. Yeah, I I, I 
think hate to both sides it, but I, I think there's there's just about as many people who, if you ask, I mean, people I, I are my my friends and family who believe that Donald Trump was was criminally put into office in 2016 was was an illegitimate president, including people you know that are that are saying this to this day, people like Hillary Clinton and others. Um, I think it's it's damaging for our democracy. I know we use that term for for any political party, any leaders to to perpetrate this idea that that our elections are not uh, on the up and up. And I think it happens on both sides, unfortunately. All right. There it is. Both sides. Uh, all right. Last thing uh, before I get to some kind of general questions for you. I, I'm curious about Abby Grossberg specifically. Abby is a main character in your book also. Um, and, and I have to say those Dominion text messages from her are some of the ones who I don't know if she totally believed it, uh, but she certainly seems to believe Maybe she's trying to, you know, placate to her bosses, Maria Bartiromo and then Tucker Carlson and those staffs. But some of the more cynical text messages come from her. And yet she's emerged <laughs> as more of uh, of this 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 hero. She's on, you know, MSNBC and CNN talking about it, thanks to her lawsuit that came out after. Do you what do you make of the turn of Abby Grossberg that, that you describe in, in your book as well? When you say Abby Grossberg, I think about self-preservation. And I think that's what you see throughout this story, self-preservation. Uh, sometimes lies are told out of a self-preservation instinct, you know, trying to save face, protect your ego, protect your self-interests. And I think we see that in two directions with Abby Grossberg. One, in 2020, when she's Maria Bartiromo's producer, she says, you know, our audience doesn't want to hear about a peaceful transition. She says that, and in in that quote got a lot of attention from Dominion. Yeah. She says that in the context, and this is why I liked doing this book. I then find the context for these incendiary quotes. The context is Maria Bartiromo doubting herself. She's just come off the air. She's interviewed Donald Trump earlier in the day. It's Trump's first interview since losing the election. Trump's in denial about losing. In my view, he sounded delusional on the air with Maria Bartiromo. Maria's doubting herself and saying, should I have just gone five more minutes and asked him about Biden? Should I have, you know, basically asked, should I have asked him about the next president? Right. And, and Abby's the one that says, no, our viewers don't want to hear about a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and so I think in that context, she's trying to preserve her, her job and her show. We're thinking about her viewers. What are, what, are, what are the viewers at Fox want to hear at that time? So it's self-preservation. Then 2023 comes along. She sues Fox. She says Fox, uh, it was an environment of harassment and discrimination. She says Fox was giving her bad legal guidance about Dominion, et cetera. It's all, you know, it's in public view. She tells Time Magazine in an interview that Maria viewed her relationship with Trump as her Trump card, her protection, her way to stay in Fox's good graces, that Fox mistreated her, didn't respect her, but she always had Trump. She could get Trump on the phone. So as long as Trump had power, Maria had power. So in that view, Trump losing was also Maria losing. And there was a self-preservation thing going on, trying to protect Trump and protect her own job. So Abby has explained it in different ways. I think that's a really interesting insight into what Maria might have been thinking. You know, when Trump lost, she lost also. But can I say one more thing about Abby Grossberg? I think what she reveals, and here's where I have sympathy for her, what she revealed about Fox was that it was being held together by glue and tape. And this is true, far more corners of television news than we want to admit. Yeah, She was basically like the only producer and she looks at other shows that have better staffs. She wanted a, a promotion. She wasn't getting it, but she felt like here I am understaffed, under-resourced, trying to put this show on the air. And then people are going to blame me for, for BS being aired on the show. I, I think um, one thing I learned at CNN when, when I would be on the air on Sunday mornings and there happened to be breaking news, 
I always imagined growing up watching TV that like when there's breaking news, there's an army around the anchor. There's so much support and so much help. People come in from all directions to help with the coverage. Like I, this is how it should be, by the way. Like I imagine that in a breaking news moment, you've got all the muscle of the organization. And, and yes, you know, when there's a war, when there's a crisis, that those muscles do kick in. But the truth is, when you're an anchor and you're up there and you feel like you're on a tightrope with no net, you feel like you are all alone. And that's what Abby Grossberg described about the environment at Fox, that we imagine this really muscular, impressive, number one, highly rated network, but it's really just a few people, a handful of people just trying to get on the air every day or every week. And I thought that was, regardless of what you think about her change, and that's an interesting insight and one that applies more than just at Fox. Yeah, yeah, certainly not exclusive to Fox. There, uh, let me ask you some some general things. Um, I think your your last two books, now Hoax and Network of Lies, have been obviously about Fox, um, but really about this this time period, uh, which I find also very fascinating. And I think I consider there's three big stories, uh, basically from 2016 to now over the last seven eight years. I think there's there's COVID. I think there's Trump, and you could put a lot of things into the Trump basket that we've talked about. And then there's this sort of censorship industrial complex that's emerged that's kind of really relevant to both those first two. Uh, From conversations that I've had with you, both on air and off air, I think that we roughly agree on COVID. And I think we roughly very strongly disagree on the Trump stuff. Where do you break down on this idea of censorship and of of speech when it comes to platforms, social media, um, whether things went too far? Where where do you come come down on that third aspect of this? I think the word censorship is loaded. So when you say censorship, what do you mean? Who's I being think censored? the 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 instinct, uh, in some ways an instinct, but in some ways a, a real partnership by um, government agencies like the FBI, like social media platforms, and like the you know mainstream media, the corporate media, to uh, to to make it so that certain opinions are are deemed dangerous rather than just bad. Opinions are one thing, but malicious falsehoods, disinformation campaigns are another. And so I would think, and and maybe it is hard to distinguish between the two sometimes, but I noticed a deep fake uh, earlier this week from the Trump campaign uh, pretending to be an NBC anchor. They they, must have used AI to, to fake his voice and create a fake voiceover where the NBC anchor is dumping all over the GOP debaters and promoting Trump instead. And I gotta be honest, I fell for it for a good 15, 20 seconds before I realized that's not Garrett Hake's voice. It's some asshole who made this up to trick people. And I know they think it's funny and I know they had a good time making it. But I'm of the view that that should not be in my my ex feed. I'm of the view that it's not the government that's going to take it down. Elon Musk's uh, staff should be removing that bullshit from the feed so that people aren't fooled. And it's not because I'm an idiot who's media illiterate and can't figure stuff out. But it's because I want a feed of real things, not fake things. I want a feed of of le- legitimate, genuine opinions and not BS that's made up to trick people. Well, where do so, you draw the line? You know, like, you know, sure. And, then, and then the line drawing gets really complicated. And I'd rather have private enterprise doing that than 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 public officials. So, you know, do I do I think it's as scandalous as you do that, you know, a White House aide sends an email flagging a, 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 a giant lie uh, and then lets the company decide what to do? I don't think that's as scandalous as you do. But, you know, I understand that it makes people uncomfortable um, where, where I, I guess I guess I'm sitting here thinking, how do we have an environment that's less polluted? 
you're looking at it more as like, well, don't, don't hurt anybody's opinions. I'm more interested in like the, the content of the post, right? Yeah. I mean, opinions is one thing, but like, let's obviously a Hunter Biden laptop story is, is, you know, story number one. in and I would say my, my evidence column here, right? Like as we look back on that, that was this idea of this potentially fake story using potentially fake information or, or sourcing. Um, and what happened because of that? I mean, do you think in retrospect, that was the, that was an overreach? If the people who had that laptop had given it to CNN and ABC and the New York Times at the time, as reporters tried, then there would have been a very different outcome. It's not it's not the fault of the New York Times that the New York Post has a certain reputation or a certain credibility gap, right? And I say that as someone who has friends of the Post. So I I mean the hundred by I mean you, you know that but that's we're going to go down the deepest darkest rabbit hole on that one. So you don't think it was an overreach to 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 make it so that 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 story could not be seen uh, for for a, a period of time. I, I read it. You read it. I don't, I, I, I think, I think too much is made over one decision by one platform that most people don't use. Um, I also think again, got, well, so let me tell you about a, a recent, I know I'm supposed to plug my own book, but I'll tell you about a book I recently read that, that helped me think about this. Um, professor Jeff Kosef, he wrote a book called liar in a crowded theater. And it's about that concept of someone yells fire in a crowded theater. Should that be illegal? Is it illegal? What should the rules be? And basically where he comes down is, Rather than restricting speech, rather than banning someone from yelling fire in a crowded theater, make it easier to tell if he's lying. Make it easier to assess his credibility. Because if some some you know drunk gets up and starts yelling fire, no one's going to believe him, right? Because you assess his credibility, you can tell he's fallen over all on himself, right? I think that's a more interesting approach is make it easy, make it more possible to assess the credibility of a speaker rather than silencing them, rather than trying to censor them, just create signals of credibility and trust. And, and that's where I go to that, that example about the deep fake. That shouldn't show up in my feed because BS shouldn't show up in my feed. Uh, the algorithm should prioritize real information over fake information. Prioritize, but not, but not take down. I mean, that's, that's, that's where obviously, uh, you know, we'll, 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 we'll disagree on that. Well, but I mean, but again, I'm not, I'm not saying take it down. I'm saying right. let's, exactly. let's think about like, we live in an environment that's only going to get worse in this regard. In my view is it's only going to get more polluted out there. So if that's true, I want to put on my gas mask and figure out a way to survive in this polluted information environment where in a year or two, most information on the internet will be generated by robots uh, in that environment. Like, I, that's not going to be healthy for my kids. It's not going to be healthy for your kids. We have to figure out ways to make this environment healthier. And that I, healthy is not, I, I don't think healthy is a code word for censor. Right. <laughs> I think healthy is a code word for how do we get to a place where real cre uh, vetted information is, is valued and foolishness and memes are not. But yeah. maybe that's maybe I'm you know maybe I'm just dreaming and I'm the only that one would be great. in that world. But like that's vetted by I who? I, I get nervous. I get nervous <laughs> about who's doing the vetting. Um, let me ask you before I get to some personal stuff. Um, you wrote when Chris Licht, uh, the CEO of CNN, was was fired uh, back in June that that Licht and also David Zaslav, who's still there, wants to decontroversialize the CNN brand. Um, big picture, do you think that? Licked had the right idea about the direction of CNN. Uh, that's going to take more than you know a minute to answer. But um, big picture, I think CNN in the Biden era was lowering the temperature, lowering the volume, um, even before uh, Licked was hired as CEO. 
And I think Licht wanted to continue lowering the temperature, lowering the volume. I'm sorry to use multiple or mixed metaphors, but I think that's what we were doing internally. Uh, I think there, because, you know, there are times where you need to be at 10 and there's times where you, you should better be, it's better to be at six or five. And so I think that was happening naturally with or without a change in management. I think maybe the change in management wanted to make it more explicit, make people know, you know, notice the change more dramatically, right? Yeah. Um, but maybe wanted to point it out. But again, I don't know. I'm speculating. Uh, I was just one of, you know, 4,000 staffers there at the time. Uh, but so big picture, I think what I'm trying to say is yes. Like, I think big picture, yes, is what I'm trying to say. But I'm I'm hesitating because it's there's all these nuances and caveats. And, you know, I don't like buying into this idea that anyone pushes that CNN was anti something or pro something, right? Uh, it was complicated. The Trump years were complicated, and uh, and it's still complicated today to figure out what do you do with this stream of disinformation that comes out of his mouth. Yeah, well, complicated. Although I do think that there, you mentioned credibility gap earlier. I think there was a credibility gap, you know, that was unfortunately emerging, you know, for some people. But let me ask you on a personal. No, no, level. You can't. You can't. What you mean is you don't think I was trusted. You can, you can be more explicit. Well, not personally. I, I think the brand. I think the brand itself was less trusted by the average non-political independent person uh, in the country in a way that was damaging to the brand. And so Let's I play don't know. that out. If that's true, and I don't know how we measure it. If that's true, what was the alternative? What was the alternative to pull punches? Well, I've, to I've stay said this silent before. when he lied, to stay I, silent when he tried to tried to destroy CNN. I, I've said this before. This is this is what I my my diagnosis is that that in, when faced with what they what CNN you know the people that I used to work with and you used to work with um, believed was an existential threat to our democracy. I don't happen to share that opinion, but if that's what the opinion, then that's fine. Then that's when you double down on your standards. That's instead of two sources, now we need three or four sources. Now we're going to the only way we're going to prove that this is the case is to convince his own supporters that this is true, that that this is so dire. And but then that's advocacy. Was, but then that's advocacy to try to convince of his supporters of something. Well, but but to tell the truth, right? But they went the other direction. Instead, the guardrails were off. Instead of two sources, we need maybe one. Oh, the New York Times has got one, so we'll just use that source. It was, you know, opinion was was elevated in ways that it wasn't before because the threat is too big. So we have to meet this moment by by doing things differently. I would say you meet the moment by doing things better and even more of the same as you did before. And that, Which that's is of where course I, what I think we did at CNN. But, you know, you, we, there could be not just one book on this. There could be multiple books just yes. on this. I mean, I, yeah. I would go through and say a lot of those anonymous source claims have been confirmed by John Kelly, the chief of staff on the record. I, I would go through and tell you that if anything, the mainstream media underestimated the threat, understated and undercovered the threat. Um, but you know, and a lot of the anonymous source claims didn't didn't turn out. Let me ask you on on okay, you were let go from CNN about fifteen months ago now, uh, and and I, I would say you famously are, are someone who like worked nonstop. You were doing nights and we, <laughs> early mornings and weekends. Uh, I can see, especially from following you on Instagram now, um, life is very different for you. You know, you've got two young kids just like I do. You know, I I think of being a dad as like the most important job I'll ever have. I I, I get the sense that you kind of share that. So what has life been like uh, for the last year plus? You know, there are a few mornings when I wake up with what I think is a really good startup idea. And uh, I've even gone as far as to prototype and design it and, you know, you know, register the domain names and, you know, think, you know, take it really seriously. But those mornings are are fewer and further between or farther between fewer, further between than I than I thought they would be. Um, and that's because of the dad thing. 
yeah. that you just described, uh, the dad thing. Um, it's because my kids are six and four. And next year, they're going to be seven and five. And, and before long, they're going to be teenagers. And so I want to enjoy these days as much as I can. Uh, so I'm class dad now for Sonny's first grade class. That's an awesome job to have. You know, trolls on Twitter like to to say, well, do, do, you, do you even have a job? And, you know, sometimes I want to reply and like, well, I'm a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and I have a podcast every week and I'm writing a book and I'm a producer of the morning show, but I'm class dad. You know, like it's 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 a genuinely great title to have. And, um, and it, I guess that's, what's caused me to stay at home longer than I would have guessed. So the, the truth, the truth is in August of 2022, if you had told me that I'd still be enjoying this in between full-time job life, 15 months later, I wouldn't have believed that. Right. But the reason why I'm enjoying it, the reason why it's been so great is because of having that, that time with the family. You know, we used to be a family because my wife's a morning TV anchor, uh, you know, we had a nanny get to the house at six in the morning and when we lived in New York City and I was in CNN. And we needed her to be there at six in the morning because I never knew what days I'd be on New Day or, you know, I, I never knew what days I'd be rushing into work. Um, uh, so to have that freedom now is really, really wonderful. Yeah. All right. Last thing before uh, the lightning round, I'm kind of on that same point, but uh you have written before, uh, very movingly, I would say, uh, in 2011 and then 2016 about um, losing your own dad at the age of 15, yeah. and uh, I, I would encourage. I'll, I'll link to it in the in the in the description here, but I would encourage people to go read it. It's called My Dad uh, on Medium. Um, how much of that plays a role into into what you've thought about over the last year of of the spending the time with your family? Hmm. Number one, great question. Number two. Uh, no one's ever asked me. Uh, number three, I'm stalling. So I'm trying to think of the right answer. Um, yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the takeaways from having my dad die at he was about 45. So you know, and, and as you said, I was 15. One of the takeaways is that it's hard for me to look into the future and see an 80 year old version of myself. And, you know, you know, let's, you know, knock on wood, whatever it is, you know, ho hopefully live long and prosper and I'll be a boring, uh, great grandparent, but it's hard for me to, to picture that guy. Cause I can't picture that of my dad. Right. And so there's a part of me that thinks, you know, that, that, that probably views the, the point where my dad passed away as a, as a milestone. Right. And, and is definitely thinking about time differently as a result. I, I think that's what I've heard from other you know, people I know who lost a parent when they were teenagers, they think about that timing a little bit differently. They think about time a little differently. Um, so that's definitely part of it. And then I, I guess the other part of it that relates to my own father is he was an appliance repairman uh, who worked in DC. We lived in suburban uh, uh, Maryland. He had an hour long commute on a good day. He would listen to talk radio news on the way home. And then, you know, he would pretend to be surprised when I would read in the news when he walked in. Um, but, you know, that sacrifice for his family, those long commutes, you know, by the way, he worked on like Gloria Borger's kitchen. I, I love wow. that he he interacted with like people I view as famous um, yeah. in his in his job. And you know, Gloria college. Borger wrote me the nicest note when he passed. And so we've remained in touch. But but, you know, it, that that um, that sacrifice he was making, you know, and not being as present as he could be. It definitely makes me uh, appreciate doing a uh, school drop off. It definitely makes me appreciate doing school pickup and being there for the bus. You know, it's an advantage. It's a privilege that I have. And I'm definitely more aware of it because of losing him at a young age. We end with the fourth watch lightning round on David Carr, Megan Kelly, and more. Damn, Steve, saving the hard question for last. 
That's how you got to do it, I think, right? Oh, wait, no, because uh, no, now is lightning round. Now is the hard stuff. No, no, that's now it's easy. Uh, all right, six questions, <laughs> 60 seconds. Uh, where were you born? Silver Spring, Maryland, Holy Cross Hospital. All right, you're the host of the Inside the Hive podcast. What's one benefit and one cost of that role? Uh, the benefit is that I can promote the book on it this week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the, the benefit is that I can have th- what you're doing, 30 to 40 minute conversations with interesting people. Uh, the cost is uh, a long commute into the World Trade Center building sometimes, but thankfully I can drop off the kids at school, do the long commute, and then get home before the bus arrives. Nice. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, well, you say the word mentor. I think of David Carr right away because of the New York Times media columnist, uh, you know, he passed away almost a decade ago at this point. Um, so I would say a, a mentor for me now has been Bill Carter, uh, New York Times veteran media reporter. He helped me edit the book, uh, Network of Lies. He helped me uh, with the process. He would read every draft and give me feedback. And so he was really helpful for that. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? <laughs> Your boss, Megan Kelly. All right. Um, leave it there. Uh, who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? That isn't getting enough attention. A week ago, I would have said Taylor Tomlinson, but now she just got hired to yeah. host the uh, Late Late Show, the new, the, well, what was the Late Late Show? It's called Midnight on CBS. And so now all of a sudden everybody knows her, but that would have been my, that would have been my answer a week ago. Okay. All right. Last one. One year from today, we're like right after the 2024 election. What's one prediction for the media? That no one will be able to agree because everyone lives in their own version of the media. And that it's almost impossible to cover the media now because uh, there is no one media anymore for us. All right. Well, that's unfortunate. But Brian, (laughs) thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much to Brian Stelter. Uh, Really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Always like talking to him on air, off air. Uh, and you know, we don't always agree. I think that's important though, to have that conversation, particularly have that conversation publicly, uh, like we did. So, uh, great talking with Brian. Remember fourth watch, not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do check out the artist who created it super duper, that's super duper music on Instagram song is far from falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download and follow like rate review subscribe to this podcast, the fourth watch podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your free podcasts back soon or soonish to be honest, but stay safe. Talk to you then.